Right, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Hope you're well. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and take them out, open them up to Mark chapter 9 with me, and we're going to continue in our Mark series and pick, off, uh, pick up from where we left off uh, last week. As you guys get turned there, I want to start with this. Um, over my lifetime uh, to this point, I, I grew up, and especially years ago, I grew up in kind of the golden era of cheesy Christian lingo that gets plastered onto Christian cheesy merchandise, right? Shirts, bumper stickers, license plates, decals, all that kind of stuff. And I grew up in the time and in the day where that stuff was, it's still kind of popular now, but exceptionally popular kind of all throughout my life. Now, I want to contend with you today, while mo- most of it was kind of harmless and Whatever, but I want to contend with you that much of our cheesy Christian uh, lingo that we put on T-shirts and coffee cups and license plates and all that stuff actually teaches bad theology. Now, I know you're shocked to hear this if you've ever seen it. You're probably blown away right now. Uh, as if one more uh, Jesus juke t-shirt, they'll like post up a statement. If we commission the whole church, that's going to see the next great revival in America break out. Like the world gets one because we put uh, cheesy lingo on our shirts. But in all seriousness, I do think that um, mo- most of it doesn't have too much of an issue, but I do think there's some that have been unhelpful along the way, and I'll explain what I mean by that. One of my favorite ones that was uh, extremely popular, probably closer to like 10 years ago or so, uh, and, and tell me if you've ever seen this one before, and I did check yesterday, if you feel so inclined, the shirt is still available, and the license plate is still available if you're inspired after we get done this morning. So uh, what it says is this, is it says, God is my co-pilot. Have you guys seen this? Okay, there you go. And here's the deal. If you have that on your car right now, we're going to have a five-minute buffer after we get done with our service today where you can run and get out of here before anybody else sees you. So, no, we're just kidding. There's no judgment for that. We love you. We're glad you're here as well, and we're glad the bumper sticker is here. So, uh, anyway, so I want to contend with you, though, that that type of mentality that is captured on a, uh, most of the time, license plate or T-shirt has crept into the church in a heavy way. Meaning this, um, if we're not careful, we can buy into a version of Christianity that says something like this, uh, your life is your life and you're in control, right? Chase your dreams, chase your goals, do whatever you want to do, go run after anything in this world. And if you happen to stumble along the way, or if you need a little pick-me-up, or if you need a little bit of help, what you do is you call on God at that point, and he'll kind of help steer you in the right direction, right? So chase your dreams, chase your goals, do whatever you want to do. And if you're in a problem, you lean over, you hit your co-pilot on the knee and say, hey, would you put us back on track for a minute? And I want to contend with you that I believe that maybe some of us are living this way right now. We kind of walk with that Jesus is my co-pilot mentality where it says that, Jesus, you're really along for my ride. Right, like you're over here in the passenger seat, you're going where I'm taking you, but if I need help, you're the first one I'm calling. Or you're the one I'm going to go to. But I want to continue with you this morning, if that is you, and I believe that's probably some of us today. One, I'm glad you're here. But number two, I want to contend with you this, that I believe Jesus has something far greater in mind for his people than that type of life. I believe the abundant life that Jesus wants to offer you and I looks a heck of a lot different than Jesus tagging along for our journey. And I want to do that. I want to show you this today. I want to show you this great lesson uh, that I think Jesus teaches his disciples in the scriptures. But before we get into it, I want to share with you up front kind of the main idea of the message so that as we go through our story today, you'll be able to see this all kind of unfold. Here's the main idea. We'll put it up on the screens for you. It's this. The Christian life should be one of complete and total dependence on Christ. The Christian life should be one of complete and total dependence dependence on Christ. Here's what I simply mean by this, that the life that Jesus has in mind for us 
is that you and I as his people are completely dependent on him no matter what we see or no matter what we face. That everything in life requires us as Christians, if you're a Christian today, to be fully, totally, completely sold out, dependent on Christ to see you through. And in order to show you this, I want to take us back to a story really quickly last week that we started in, in order to make some sense of it. Um, If you were here last week, we talked through the story of the transfiguration. Now, if you weren't here, I want to challenge you to go online today. You can go and watch that. James did a fantastic job of kind of unpacking that story of the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. But at the transfiguration, if you remember, this is the story where Jesus one day goes up onto a top of a mountain and he takes with him three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they go up this mountain and what happens at the top of the mountain is one of the most spectacular scenes that we see in all of scripture. They get up to the top of the mountain, Peter, James, and John are there and then all of a sudden Jesus kind of transforms or transfigures or changes and his appearance shifts. He changes what what they see of him. And what they see now is this Jesus who is radiating this kind of glorious white light right in front of them, right? So no longer was he the same as when they came up. He's kind of this glorious white. They're seeing him in all of his glory. And not only do they see him in his glory, but they also see on the mountain with him Moses and Elijah who are there as well. Now, rule of thumb, if you ever walk up a mountain with one of your boys or your friends or whatever, and you get to the top of that mountain, he starts glowing this radiating white, and then two dead guys appear, you're, en- you're about to get freaked out, right? It's enough to kind of send you for a few loops and question what in the world is going on here. But that's what these disciples saw when they were up on the top of that mountain. They get up to the top, Jesus has changed, Moses and Elijah are there, and this is kind of spectacular scene. And Matthew chapter 17, Matthew's account of this story says that as this unfolded, that the disciples went down on their faces. Like so many people do in the scriptures, when they get a glimpse of the glory of God, they fall down like dead men. They fall down and and Peter starts to try to just kind of reach for words. He doesn't know how to respond and he's just trying to figure out what to say, what to do. And they kind of sit there and then all of a sudden in this kind of glorious and beautiful scene, they hear this voice come through. And they hear something beautiful. They hear God the Father speaking to them out of a cloud. And he's speaking to them something that they needed to learn and something that I pray that we will learn today. And we're going to look at it in Mark chapter 9, verse 7 again. It's a story. It says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the uh, the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. And hear these last words. Listen to him. And so as they are in this kind of glorious and beautiful scene on the top of the mountain with Jesus shining bright white, two dead guys there with them that they've heard all these stories about, all of a sudden this voice cuts through and says, this man that you're following, this Jesus that is radiating this kind of beautiful glory in front of you, this man that you guys have spent so much time with already, this man is my beloved son. He is God in the flesh walking among you. And because he is who I'm declaring him to be, you need to listen to him. And the idea that goes along with that is that you need to listen to him. You need to follow him. You need to trust him. You need to depend on him. And so you can see at the transfiguration, the kind of the main point of our time today is that God is teaching these disciples that your entire life should be one of complete and total dependence on Christ. And that's what these disciples learned at the transfiguration, that they need to listen to, they need to learn from Jesus. Follow him no matter where he takes you. 
And so with that being the backdrop for our time today, I want to go ahead and transition to our story that we're going to be in. And I want you to see how the other disciples, the other nine, learned a really hard lesson on this particular day. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read starting in verse 14 together. It says, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and they ran up and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. So it's the next day after the transfiguration, and Jesus and the other three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they start to make their way back down the mountain. And their plan is they're going to go meet up with the other disciples down at the bottom. And as they make their way down, the scene that they see unfolding in front of them is a little bit chaotic. They're making their way down, and they see the disciples, the other nine, gathered together with this large crowd of people. And they can tell just by looking at it, there's some sort of argument that's taking place down at the bottom. Now, this crowd of people is gathered there, but there's this one group of people that are there as well called the scribes. Now, the scribes are simply this. They're people whose job it was to study the Old Testament law. These were Jewish guys. They studied the Old Testament law. They wrote commentaries on it. It was their job to know the law. And these guys were oftentimes associated with the Pharisees. So these guys, you can imagine why they're there. They're not there because they want to just hang out with the disciples. They're there as instigators and probably trying to provoke this great crowd into some sort of an argument. And so Jesus comes down on the mountain, and what happens is the crowd sees Jesus coming, and they immediately leave the disciples, and they go running to him. Now, if you've ever been in a moment like this where you're talking with somebody face-to-face in a crowded room, and uh, you're talking, and you guys are having a conversation, but all of a sudden behind you, somebody way smarter than you, way more popular than you, more famous than you, maybe better looking than you, starts to walk by, and they're like, hey, that's a good story, and then they go over to this guy instead, that's what's happening here. They totally leave the disciples, and they say, we want Jesus, man, we're going to him. And so they leave him, they run over to Jesus, and Jesus asks the disciples, what in the world are you guys arguing about here? And in this moment, this man somehow kind of makes his voice louder than the others, and he calls out and he says, teacher, I brought my son to you today because he's possessed by a spirit. I brought my boy to you, and I brought my boy to the disciples so that maybe we could see something change today. This spirit, it seizes him, the boy is mute, it throws him down, he foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth. And what does the man say? The man says, he's here today with his boy because he came to, to ask the disciples to cast the spirit out. And in the man's words, they were not able to. Now, this is interesting, and I hope you see the tension that's kind of building in this moment, because here's why. If you remember back into Mark chapter 6, just a few chapters ago, Jesus had this moment with his disciples when he commissioned them and sent them out two by two. He gathered them around. He said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start to send you out two by two, and you're going to continue the ministry that we're doing together. I'm going to send you out in the world to start doing that. And then you'll come back and report back to me, and we'll still meet up, but I'm going to send you out to go do this. And one of the things that Jesus gave the, gave the disciples the authority to do was to cast out unclean spirits, demonic spirits. And they were able to do it. So they were having a few chapters of successful ministry. People are getting healed. Things are changing. Man, God's glory is being seen. People are coming to faith. It's, it's a really um, interesting sight that these guys are able to kind of start continuing the work that Jesus had commissioned them to do. 
But three chapters later, when we get into Mark chapter 9, something has changed. And we come into this story, and we see this dad bring his boy, and accusation as Jesus comes down and asks what's going on is, hey, I brought my boy, but these guys weren't able to do anything about it. And so the question for us simply becomes this. What has changed for the disciples in three short chapters? Right, what, what changed from Mark chapter 6 to Mark chapter 9? Mark 6, where they're able to do that ministry. Mark 9, now they're not able to do it. What happened? And I want to contend with you that what happened here was just the opposite of what Jesus, what the disciples learned while they were with Jesus on the mount at the transfiguration when they heard the Father speak. These guys at the bottom were experiencing something completely different from what God was teaching at the top of the mountain. God at the top of the mountain said, this is my beloved son, you need to listen to him. And as soon as that lesson gets taught to the three, Peter, James, and John, they come down the mountain and they find their other boys, their other crew, the nine others, doing the exact opposite of what they just heard about on the mountain, right? So instead of listening to Jesus, following him and trusting him, because we know they were doing that. When they got sent out in Mark chapter six, they were dependent on Christ like maybe they never had to by that point. They knew if they were gonna see the ministry of Jesus accomplished in the world that he had sent them to do, they were going to have to be people who were dependent on him to see it through. And in just three short chapters, they run into this moment where they can't do it. And so what they're experiencing here is what I wanna call this self-righteous independence. I believe the disciples here are experiencing what I'll call self-righteous independence. And here's why. When Jesus responds back to the disciples to what's going on here, he responded back to them by accusing them of being a faithless generation. And in this moment, when he's talking with them and he's calling them a, a faithless generation, he's pointing out to them that you once started in faith. Just a few chapters ago, you guys, we sent you out, you started in faith, but now you were this faithless generation. This faithless generation where you once depended on me to accomplish the ministry, now you're trying to walk in your own strength and you don't actually have any faith in me. Now my immediate response when I hear stories like this, and I think probably most of us, is to look at the disciples and say, how did you miss it? How did you miss that? You guys have been walking with Jesus. You've been sharing life together, like arm in arm sharing ministry together with Jesus. Right, he's over here turning uh, fish and loaves and feeding thousands. He's doing all this incredible stuff. You've seen all of these glorious things done. And now you come to this moment where you're getting called by the Son of God a faithless generation. And so what in the world were they doing in this moment? And I'm easy, like you, probably to criticize them and say, man, why in the world would they do this? But I want to say that I think that some of us experience the very same things in a lot of ways. And I'll share a story about myself to kind of show how that's true. Um, I, I think that what happens over time is when we start to get into uncomfortable situations that really kind of make us stretch our faith a little bit. Right? So spiritual work, the ministry that God has called you to. And when I say ministry, don't think like pastor, preacher, teacher. Think you. God has commissioned you to do a ministry in this world to make his name known. And so as we begin to start doing that... I believe all of us start from a point where we understand how desperate we are for God to move. When I first got into ministry, I was a 20-year-old punk who had absolutely no business being in ministry at that point whatsoever. God had given me a ton of opportunities at an early age that I was not quite prepared for. And so my first role in ministry, I was a student pastor at a church, and uh, so I was preaching weekly. Now, I had zero preaching training whatsoever, so God helped those kids that had to listen to me for a few years, because it was surely miserable at that point in time. But I knew at that point in my ministry, because I knew how, if, if you would ask, I was keenly aware of my inabilities, 
I understood that I wasn't good enough, I wasn't qualified enough, I didn't have enough training, I had no idea what I was doing. And because that was the case in my ministry at that point in my life, how desperate do you think I was for God to move? Man, I was desperate. And so I remember times before I would preach, I would get there early, and then I would get on my face and lay on the floor, and my prayer went really something like this, like, God, I have no idea what I'm doing today. Lord, help see me through this. God, this is gonna be a train wreck if you don't move. So God, would you help me? Would you come through in a big way? God, would you be glorified? Come and use me however you see fit. God, I just wanna be used by you today. I was dependent, I was desperate to see God move. And so I would fall down on my face and I would cry out. We know what that's like. But what happens? Over time, as you start to get a little bit more comfortable, You start to slowly not walk in the dependence that you once had. So in my ministry once where I would show up desperate, begging, praying, God, would you move? I began to learn a little technique. I began to learn how to write a little bit and how to speak in front of people a little bit. And I began to to learn some different tricks and, and tips and how to study the scriptures in a more clear way. And so as I began to do that, I started to become, uh, I kind of went further and further away from the source of my help, right? The longer I was doing the ministry, the less dependent I was becoming, Because I thought by this point, man, I can do it in my own strength. Now, I probably would never vocalize that to you at the time, but it was how I acted. Where I was once prayerful, where I once was desperate, now I started to think, well, I think I've got this. I think I can handle this. And I'm sure some of us face similar situations today. I want to throw out a few real examples and see if maybe you face this at all in your life. What about the people in the room? And I know because there's so many of you that I've had the opportunity to work with and walk through with hard times What about you guys that have faced just really painful marital issues? Marital issues that took you to the brink. It was like, man, we're this close to calling it quits. We're we're this close to throwing in the towel and saying, we're done here. And it was in those moments when you became desperate that you would say, God, I'll do anything. God, I I am hungry for you to come and save this thing. God, I know that I can't do this on my own, so Lord, I am desperate for you to move in a powerful way. God, come and save my marriage. I'll do whatever it takes, and you'll be on your face, and you'll pray, and you'll cry out to God, God, do anything to save this marriage, and he does. I know there's so many of you that you've seen God do some incredible, incredible things in your marriage, and he has restored your marriage to places that you never thought would exist. But what happens as it starts to get better, sometimes we become more comfortable. And when we become more comfortable, sometimes if we're not careful, we'll become less dependent. Like the disciples did, as we continue to see our marriage kind of flourish, we start to think, well, yeah, I kind of got this. I've learned how to date my wife. I've learned how to be nice to her. I've learned how to be a good spouse, right? I'm a, I'm a good wife. I'm a good husband. I'm a good person now. And so we begin to kind of walk in this self-righteous independence that says, no, 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 I've got this now. What about when you're facing sin issues in your life? And I'll use... This is an example. What about uh, if you've ever struggled through uh, sin of pornography and sexual sin? Men and women who've struggled through uh, hard seasons of that. And maybe you got yourself to a point where you realized how just hard that sin was in your life and how embarrassing it was for you and how ashamed you were of it and, and you knew that your sin was breaking the heart of God and so you cried out to God, God, help give me relief here. God, I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to feel the way I do. I don't want to sin this way. God, would you come and free me from it? And so you cry out to God and you're desperate. God, free me. And sure enough, 
you see God come in and do a powerful work and you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you probably shouldn't watch that anymore. Hey, you probably shouldn't do that anymore. Hey, start to trust in me and I'm gonna help you. And you start to become free from it and praise God for that. But what can happen if we're not careful? We begin to become self-righteously independent. We begin to think, well, no, 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 I've got this now. I'm far enough away from that sin that I don't have any more problems. Right? I can start watching that show again because I'm good now. I mean, that was three years ago. I'm fine. Like, I don't have that issue anymore when I'm at the gym and I see the girl or the guy walk by. Like, that's, that's not a problem for me any longer. And then what happens? Sin starts to creep at the door because you're becoming less and less dependent on him like you once were. You name any sort of issue, and we can see this come up. There are moments that you're gonna face, and you probably have in your life, if you're a Christ follower, that have driven you to your knees. You've had a family member get sick. Somebody's passed away. A hard season has come through your life, and it's driven you to your knees. And maybe you had to become dependent, like maybe you've never experienced before, but over time, if we're not careful, just like the disciples, we continue to walk in our independence and we become self-righteously independent with this mentality that says, no, 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 I'm okay now. I've got this. And we end up turning away from our only true source of help. And so now the question becomes, if self-righteous independence is wrong, what is the right way? What's the right way for you and I as Christ's followers to live in the world today? I'm glad you asked. We're gonna continue to read and you'll see why. All right, Mark chapter nine, so we're gonna pick it up in verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. And immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I want you to hear this. I believe, help my unbelief. And so Jesus is now faced with frustration with his disciples and he says, that's fine, uh, man and boy, come over here. He calls them to himself and he brings them over and I love what Jesus did here. I didn't see this when I first started looking at the text, but I started to notice it the more I studied and I want you to pay close attention to see it as well. Jesus calls the boy and the man over to himself and and at this point, the boy is rolling on the ground, right? He's convulsing in front of him. And Jesus knows exactly what's wrong with this boy. He knows he's possessed by a spirit. The man that just told him a few verses earlier, he's the son of God, he knows all things. He knew what was going on. And so this man comes over with this boy and surely at this moment, this man is thinking, okay, here's the moment. Here's the moment my boy's gonna come free from this. Like Jesus is calling us over. Surely this is the chance, and so Jesus calls him over, but instead of healing him, what does Jesus do? He starts to ask him questions. Don't you love that? It's like, man, I just want you to heal my boy. Why are you asking for a history lesson right now? I just want you to, to heal my son. What is going on? And he starts to ask him questions. And at this moment, this man, you know, this man showed up that day with his boy who's been possessed with his spirit his entire life. And surely by this point, he's thinking when he showed up today, all right, these disciples are going to be able to heal him. But they couldn't do it. And so his hope gets lost. But then he sees Jesus coming down the mountain and says, okay, maybe this is it. He's coming. So maybe that glimmer of hope starts to come up again. And, and then Jesus calls him over and he starts asking him questions instead of healing him. And at this point, the man starts to kind of up the ante on his answers, if you will. 
He starts to kind of try to get Jesus to see how serious this is. Like, Jesus, I'm not playing games. He is possessed by this spirit and has tried to destroy him. Jesus, this spirit has tried to cast him into fire to burn and to kill him. Jesus, this spirit has tried to put him into water to drown him. And the man comes back with this. He's at the end of his rope. He's at his wit's end. And he calls out to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So no longer is the question, Jesus, will you do this? The question has now become, Jesus, can you do this? So we're desperate. Like, I came here today thinking things were going to change you. Well, we are desperate. Now I'm losing faith. Jesus, can you do anything? And Jesus says, don't forget who you're asking. Don't forget who you're asking. If I can, all things are possible for those who believe. And I love it as the man says what he says to Jesus. He says, Jesus, if you'll have compassion on us, if you'll help us. And I love that because now the language has shifted away from being just helping the boy, but it's Jesus, help us. Now, I'm not a parent unless you count my dog and Jesus' favorite animal, a cat. And I know that's offensive to many, but (laughs) unless you count that, I'm not a parent yet, right? But here's what I've seen. I'm surrounded with enough parents to know that when you see your kid hurting, it doesn't just hurt your kid, it hurts you. When you see your kid suffer, not only are they suffering, but you're suffering. And I know that so many of you, you would take anything in the world to see your kids healed, to see them whole, to see them free from the things that enslave them, to let sin go away, to let life be restored. You would do anything to see that happen. And so you can understand where this man is. He says, Jesus, if you would have compassion on us, help us, because I am broken. My son has been hurting for so long, and it's taking its toll on me. And so Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible for those who believe. Jesus is saying here, don't forget who you've come to ask today. I know you've just lost all the hope in the world that your story and your situation can change, that life may look different today by the end when you're done. But he says, I don't want you to forget who you're asking here because the problem is not uh, if I can do it. The problem is if you believe I can do it. Do you actually believe in me? Because that's the issue here. It's not Jesus's ability. It's the man's trust. The man to this point did not trust in Jesus. He didn't actually think Jesus could do it. He had lost all hope. And Jesus responds, if I can, all things are possible for those who believe. And the man comes to his moment, this glorious moment, one of the most beautiful moments in the scriptures. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I believe what you're selling me here. I believe now that you are who you say you are. This man just had a kind of a crash course into what faith in Jesus looks like. He just got taken head on with the son of God who says, no, I can do all things. You're the problem, not me. And if if you believe in me, all things are possible for you. There's nothing that I can't do because you're talking to the son of God, the savior of the world, Emmanuel, God with us. I can do anything I please. The problem is you don't believe in me. And so this man comes to the point, he says, well, if that's it, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus, I believe, but I have so many questions. Jesus, I believe, but I don't know the way forward. Jesus, I believe, but would you give me more faith? Jesus, I trust you, but I need to trust you more. Jesus, I want to follow you, but I don't know what that means. Jesus, I believe in you. Would you help my unbelief? And that's where this man gets to. 
And so the question for us becomes, where is our faith today? That's a question I want you to think about and turn over in your head for a moment. Where is our faith today? Because here's what I know, if we're not careful when we see passages like what we just read, that say all things are possible for those who believe. What we'll do is we'll take verses like that and we'll run off and we'll get into a prosperity gospel kind of name it and claim it theology saying, well, all right, well, if I want something, what I need to do is say that it's mine and then I'll receive it. So my problem in the world is that I don't have enough faith. So if I have my bucket full of faith and it's only at 25%, what I need to do is get my faith bucket up to 75% and then maybe God will actually start to answer my prayers. And so you kind of go introspective and you think, all right, how can I do this? How can I do this? How can I do this? How can I get more faith? And what Jesus is teaching here is just the opposite. And Jesus is saying it's not the amount of faith that's the issue, it's who you have faith in. It's not the amount of faith that you have that's the problem, it's the object of your faith. He's telling the man, your faith wasn't in me, it was in some other circumstance, and, and what you need to do is actually trust in me, not these other things. Here's what we know, that Jesus can do a whole lot with a little bit of faith in him. Jesus can do more than you and I could ever fathom with about that much faith put in the right place. As you and I learn how to get our eyes off of ourselves and look up and get our faith to the Son of God, things begin to change. As you and I begin to see that it's not about me, this isn't about how much faith I can accomplish, this is about how good I am, how smart I am. I don't need to go to school to learn what it means to have faith in Jesus. I don't have to be the smartest person in the room and praise God for that because that's not me and so I'm glad that it doesn't take a whole lot of faith to get me anywhere. It takes me faith in the right place. Put into Jesus and him alone. And Jesus can do all things for those who believe in him. And so the question for you is, where is your faith? I believe some of us are so confused in our spiritual lives right now because you've been told that you need to have more faith. But then something goes wrong in your world and you start to question, well, maybe I'm the issue here. Maybe if I had more faith, I wouldn't be sick. Maybe if I had more faith, my kid wouldn't be in the situation that they're in. Maybe if I had more faith, my marriage wouldn't be falling apart. Maybe if I had more faith then my life wouldn't be in shambles. But what Jesus wants you to know is that your faith is probably misplaced and it's not actually in him. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me say this. Maybe you're wrestling with faith in some way, shape, or form. I pray these stories would be in, so encouraging for you. Because as you watch this man say, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief, here's what I want you to know. Jesus is strong enough for any sort of doubts that you have. You are not gonna shake the eternal universe because of your doubts. You can bring those to him and he can handle those. He is more than faithful and more than adequate to handle those doubts. And so I pray that you'd bring those to him. And so as we get ready to end our time today, I wanna talk really quickly. As we see this man who got himself to the point where now he has become totally and fully dependent on Christ, what does that actually look like lived out in our lives? I've been on this weird journey since about February of this year where God has used stories like this in the scriptures to challenge me in profound ways. It's been like a year-long just kind of journey of me learning what it looks like to try to become more dependent on him than I once was. And as I've done that, I've tried to kind of think through today, like, what does it actually look like practically lived out for you and I to take this kind of position that we are fully and completely dependent on Christ? Well, we're going to continue to look, and we'll finish out our story in verse 25 to 29, and we'll learn uh, what, what Jesus does next here. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, 
He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, it is, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and he lifted him up, and he arose. And when they had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So as we end our time today, I want to give you two ways that you and I can learn what it looks like to become dependent on Christ and Christ alone. Number one, we need to embrace your weakness and abide in Christ. Embrace your weakness and abide in Christ. In the closing verses of our text, Jesus kind of comes to this moment and he casts the spirit out of the boy and he commands it to never enter him again. And so now this boy is safe and secure in the arms of Christ forever. And he comes to this moment and as the spirit is cast out, the people come over and they see the boy laying on the ground and because what Jesus had done was so radical, they think that the boy is dead. He's laying there so still, they accuse him like, Jesus, you just killed the kid. And I love what Jesus does. Jesus comes to the boy and he kind of bends down and he takes him by the hand and he lifts him up. And don't miss this, in the Greek, the original Greek language here, it says literally that Jesus resurrects him. Not that the boy was dead and needed to be resurrected, but that the boy's life is gonna be so changed from this point forward, he will never be the same again. Jesus has just changed this kid's story forever. He'll never be the same person. For all of his days now, he's gonna know, I am who I am because of the grace of Jesus. I didn't get myself here. I didn't get myself to this place where this spirit would leave, but instead I am where I am because Jesus has changed my life and my story forever. And so for us today, just like the dad, the dad and the boy, they knew how weak they were. That dad was desperate. Surely they had tried all his life to do whatever they could to fix it. But where Jesus wanted them to get was this point of weakness where they say, you know what? We give up. I don't have the right answers. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. We give up. And Jesus, I need your help. And Jesus heals the boy and he changes his story forever. John chapter 15, one of the most beautiful verses in all of the scripture. Jesus is teaching his disciples an important lesson. And if you want to read it this week, it's, it's a powerful chapter. John 15. Jesus says that as Christians, we need to do this. We need to abide in him because apart from him, we can do nothing. Church, what Jesus is looking for from you and from me is not people that say, look how strong I am. Look how awesome I am. Look how much strength I have. Look how smart I am. Look how wise I am. Surely God can use me. Jesus is attracted to people who are fully aware of their brokenness. Jesus is attracted to people who are going to allow their weaknesses to be his strength. He wants to use people who, in the world's eyes, it makes no sense. And if you're here today and you feel that way, that in the world's eyes, maybe God could never use me. I believe you're probably in the right place because God can use you. If you feel weak, God will manifest his strength in your life. He wants to get you to a place where you say, it's not about me. Jesus, this is about you. This is about you. This is about your glory. It's about your name being known. It's not about my strength, my effort, anything like that. You can have everything the world tells you to have. Money, fame, power, wisdom. You can have all of that. And you, you can do nothing of eternal significance. But you can be weak. You can be humble. You can be broken. And God looks at that and says, I'll use it. 
I want you to look at this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, do not desire to be strong, powerful, honored, honored, respected, but let God alone be your strength, your fame, and your honor. That's the type of life that we want to live. The second thing that we're going to learn from this story and a practical way to live this out is to become prayerfully dependent. Become prayerfully dependent. This is not earth-shattering news. If you're a Christian, you know this. The disciples, as they finish that day, they go back into a house with Jesus and they're sitting around a table and I can never imagine what that day looked like. Those guys just got beat up in every sense of the word, right? They weren't able to cast the demon out. Jesus comes in and calls them faithless. Jesus changes this boy's life forever. And so I can just imagine the story as they're sitting around the table and they look like they got hit by a bus. Like what in the world just happened today? And they asked Jesus, Jesus, why couldn't we drive this thing out? And Jesus said, this kind can only be driven out by prayer. And don't confuse the language there. Jesus is not saying that there's some demonic kind of exorcism that can happen with prayer and then some without prayer. What what the wording is there is he's saying these type of spiritual battles will only be accomplished through prayer. Other way put, if you're dependent on me, that is how you'll see these victories happen. And so the idea for us is just to simply become people who are prayerfully dependent on God to move. Today as we close, I want to be careful not to think I want to be easy with this kind of message to think like, all right, well, so what I do is whenever I'm in trouble, I become prayerfully dependent and I embrace my weakness and I abide in Christ. That's what happens when I'm facing a hard moment. That's what I do. This story, this message, this lesson that the disciples learn, this is for every day of your life through the good times and through the bad. When nothing is wrong in your world or when everything is wrong in your world, we need to embrace our weaknesses, abide in Christ, become prayerfully dependent on God to move. As we close, I'll share one more quote with you from a man named Jamie, Jamie Goggin about beginning with prayer. It says, beginning with prayer is not merely a tip of the hat to God. It's not a cliche, don't forget to pray first. Rather, we begin with a posture of abiding in and depending on God in the deep places of our hearts because God is the source and goal of our power. That's the type of people we want to become. And so as we close, the band's going to come and they're going to play a song. They're actually going to play a song called Cornerstone, one of my favorite songs. And this song, is, when it's singing about the cornerstone, you know, if you build a house, if you take the cornerstone out, the, the whole thing would fall down. And so this song is about you and I learning what it looks like to be, have all of our lives built upon Christ and Christ alone. So here's the commission for you as they come to sing. Whether you're in the best time of life, you're in the worst time of life, or you're somewhere in between, I want to challenge you in this time to cry out to God to declare how dependent you are on him and to allow him to move in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word that works powerfully in our lives. And God, we just say together as a church that we trust you. God, we declare as a church that we need you. And God, would you be our strength so that the world would see your glory every single day. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for our time today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.